Okay, let's take our Bibles out. Open to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This time of year, Lisa and I like to watch Christmas movies. And just yesterday, I think we were sitting down to eat something, and I went to turn on a Christmas movie, and I thought, you know what, I'm tired of reading through them to see what they're about. I'm just going to put one up, and if it's good, it's good. If it's not, we'll change it into something else. And we did leave that movie on the whole time, and we actually had fun with it and enjoyed it. But to be honest with you, a lot of our fun was in predicting what was going to happen next. You know, like uh, the guy's driving down the road, going to some old hometown, the little country town that he left years ago to go live in the cities, and he ends up driving through a blizzard, of course, and ends up on the side of the road. And then just before he hit the gas, I, I kind of looked over at Lisa, and I went, zzzz. And, of course... He hit the gas and the tire went zzzz and he's stuck and has to walk to the farmhouse and it was just so predictable all the way through it but we had kind of fun predicting what was going to happen next in this movie and then we, a couple times it was just like, you know what, they're, they're all the same. Well, you know what, to be honest with you, that's kind of one of the preacher's greatest fears is that when you come around to a holiday like this and you go, now what do I say? Because we go over these passages over and over and over and I look up what I said Back in 2009 and 2010 and 2011. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not actually arrogant enough to think that you remember what I said in 2010. I had to look it up. But you know, there's part of you that starts going, what am I going to say that they haven't heard before? What am I going to tell them that they don't know? Then it dawns on you that you know, it's not all about that. It's not just about whether it's something you don't know. It's not, it's not just about whether it's something you've heard before. You know what it is? It's such an amazing thing. It's a, it's a miraculous thing. That's why we go over it and over it and over it again. It doesn't get old because it is fresh. It is awesome what has happened for us this Christmas season. Sometimes we can get in kind of a rut. But you know what? It just takes stopping and thinking about what do these things really mean? How do they affect me? to get you out of that rut and on to kind of fresh territory. Well, I hope that's what this is for you this morning. To be honest, it has been that for me. And my prayer is that for both you and me, that this Christmas season is anything but routine. We might be doing a lot of the same things and celebrating in a lot of the same ways, but with fresh emotion and fresh understanding as we celebrate this Christmas season together. And that's what we're focusing on this morning is Christmas. Now, within this passage, I want to deal with four different aspects of Christmas. The first one that I see is the miracle of Christmas. And that's because uh, it's an amazing event. In fact, if you look back at church history, you'll find that a lot of our early church history, the first area that they dealt with was this area. What exactly happened on Christmas? What kind of a person did this 
I don't want to say create because it didn't create him. He existed from eternity past. But we got God the Son who's existed from all eternity, but he becomes man. And that's what we look at when we look in this passage. It says that Mary is found to be with child. And Joseph is a righteous man, and so he's not willing to take on a wife that was somebody that was unfaithful to him, which it appears that she was because she's pregnant. And so he's going to divorce her. Now he's a nice guy, so he's going to do it quietly. He could really shame her and her family, but he's not going to go there. He's just going to try to deal with it quietly. And then we find that the second thing happens that really needed to happen for him, and that's an angel shows up. If you're going to get news like that, it's going to take something dramatic to make it sink in and to let you believe it. So an angel shows up to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. He said, not anything wrong. The child that's in her is the product of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when you guys have that child, he's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this Christmas, just like every other Christmas that's come before and every Christmas that's going to come in the future, we're celebrating something miraculous. This is an amazing thing. This is Jesus is a person that is both God and man. It's not like he's a strange creature, like that he is part God and part man. He just is man and he is God. And it's one of those things that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. In fact, the early church in history, they sat down to councils and to try to clearly define who is this person? What is he? Is he? How does this God and his man, we call it the hypostatic union, how does this God and man, how does that intersect? How does that, how do we understand this? It's hard to get your mind around because it's supernatural and we're natural. Because it's miraculous and we're common. Every Christmas that we spend, we're celebrating something that's up a level. We're celebrating something that is beyond just nature. This is God interacting with humankind, God becoming a man. And that's an amazing thing. You know, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah chapter 7 and 14 says there's going to be a sign given to us. The sign would be that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. And his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. That was planted as that first seed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, what's happening in Genesis chapter 3? Eve got deceived by Satan, ate the fruit, gave it to Adam, he ate the fruit, and now judgment. God is pronouncing the curse. And He's going to deal with them one at a time. He deals with Adam and Eve and the snake. And in the middle of His discussion with the snake there... It's not really a discussion. He's just telling him what's going to happen. He tells this to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, that's very unusual. In the Bible, it always refers to the seed of the man, except for in this case with dealing with Jesus. The seed of the woman. He says, you are going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. You see, from that time forward, we've been waiting for this serpent crusher. This one that's going to come and deliver us. But what is it that's unique about this one that's going to come and deliver us from the curse that we're under is going to be the seed of a woman. It doesn't say anything about Adam's seed. It says it's going to be the seed of the woman. And when we get to Isaiah, he establishes it a little bit more clearly. He says a virgin's going to conceive and bring forth a son, and you'll call him 
Emmanuel because He'll be God with us. Why? Because He's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to come from the woman, but not the man. God is the Father. That is a miraculous birth. Well, the birth might have looked common, even maybe a little excessively common, being born in a stable and laid in a manger, but it is in no way common. Well, as we consider it uh, this morning also, not only do we see the miracle of Christmas in this passage, but we also see the gift, the gift of Christmas. Every Christmas season, this gift is, is under the tree for everybody to take. And the gift that it's talking about is the gift of salvation. In fact, if you look in other places, especially the book of Luke, everybody that finds out about this, in some way they reference the salvation that God was providing through this child. Well, in this passage... It does the same thing and does it with his name. It says you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And then when he's born, Joseph names him, they name him Jesus. Because the word Jesus means Jehovah saves. And so he's spelling out the gift for us. What is, what is the whole purpose in Christmas? Is it just for fun family activities? Is it for a festive time? No. The festive time is because of the great gift. The great gift and the deep meaning of Christmas is the salvation that we experience through Christ. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's why He came. Jesus Christ is a great example to us, but He didn't come just to be an example. He came to be our Savior. And that's what Christmas is all about. We were on a trajectory that was headed straight to hell, and God changes that through the offering of His Son gives us a path to heaven through faith in, in Jesus Christ, and we have the opportunity for the gift of Christmas. So we have Christmas as a miraculous time. It's also a giving time. Kind of makes sense. I love talking to kids about it. I often like to bring up, what is Christmas? And Jesus' birthday, that's what it is. And I ask them, well, then how come you get the presents? And they're like, hey, not that they want it to change at all, but they recognize that's a valid question. And we talk about how it makes sense, actually, for all this gift giving to happen because that's what God did. God gave. He gave us His Son. And in giving us His Son, He gave us salvation. And so it's, it's, it's only appropriate that we give to one another because we're just mirroring our Heavenly Father that was giving us this wonderful salvation. So we have the miracle of Christmas. We have the gift of Christmas. But also we see within this passage, we have the depth of Christmas. Now, the reason that I say that is if you go back into chapter 1, he starts off with a genealogy, which, you know, if we're all honest, right, when we read through the genealogies, it's not the most riveting time of our devotions. But you know what? If you actually spend time and not just read through them and you dig into them, there's usually things in there that are pretty amazing. It starts off in chapter 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's significant. If you look back into the Old Testament, you'll find that there are promises given to Abraham and to David. We also refer to them as covenants. The promise to Abraham went like this in Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, this isn't long after the Tower of Babel. When God had told the people, Noah and his family, when they get off the ark, it's time to spread out and fill up the earth. Well, they didn't do it. They said, think of all the things that we can do as we band together as the generations started to grow. And so they banded together and they went to make this tower that reached up into the heavens. 
they went to do that and God came down and confounded them. So they're not doing what I told them to do. So I'm going to change their languages, mix them up so they can't communicate with another and they'll separate on their own. And so he did that. But now with all the world divided up into different languages and different people groups, what do you do with that? He chooses just one man and says, you know what, I'm going to take this one man, bless his family, grow his family into a great nation, bless that nation, and through that nation, turn and bless the world. And so that really is kind of the roadmap of what Abram's family was supposed to turn into, this nation of priests that would bless the world. Uh, but in their lack of faith and disobedience to God, they never really achieved that. But God was planning on achieving it through one descendant of Abraham's, and that's Jesus Christ. And so in celebrating Christmas, we're celebrating that offspring of Abraham's that would come and be the blessing upon the whole world as God will provide for the salvation of the world. Well, that kind of a promise was not only given to Abraham, it was also given to David. In Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, it says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God had made David king, and he gives David this promise that it would be his descendants that would sit on the throne of David and would rule. That promise also finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Matthew's pointing to. He's going to go through all this genealogy of people. It's dealing with Jesus Christ, who is proven to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. He's the fulfillment of those promises. Christmas is deeper than just that moment. It's not just about this one couple on this one night and not having room in the inn. And it's about something that was foretold from promise to Abraham, promise to David. This is something that has its roots all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This thing is deep and it's, it's about to look deeper as we consider the next idea. Is not only is there fulfilled promises, but there's also fulfilled prophecies. And that's what we see as we go forward in this passage is that he brings out one prophecy after another. He's already brought out Isaiah 7.14 that talks about the virgin shall conceive and bring forth the son. His name will be called Emmanuel. He's going to quote from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Talks about him being born in Bethlehem. Out of Egypt have I called my son a Nazarene, which to be honest with you, we're not exactly sure exactly where that comes from. There's a couple different options. But he's quoting from all these different prophets that are... Isaiah was 750 years before Christ. And so the depth of Christmas, we're celebrating something that wasn't something that was just happening at the moment, but had been foretold and promised down through the ages, something that they were waiting for, looking forward to. Christmas is an amazingly deep holiday. In fact, one of the things that that I'd like us to stop and think about for a few moments here is is the structure of the early part of the book of Matthew because the structure of Matthew itself points to a huge history that has been proclaiming Christ since early in the ages. Because if we look at the, the structure of the first several chapters of the book of Matthew, what we find is a parallel. Kind of between a couple things, but those two things are very closely related. One of them is Moses. Right? There's kind of a parallel between Christ and Moses. There's also a parallel between Christ and the nation of Israel. That makes sense, right? Because Moses was the leader of the nation of Israel while they were experiencing these things. Matthew points out the parallel between Christ and the nation of Israel because when Jesus comes back up out of Egypt, it looks back at the nation of Israel. Remember when God brought the nation of Israel up out of Egypt, out of that bondage? That in itself was a type of Christ, was pointing to Christ coming up out of Egypt. Matthew arranges the events of the Gospel, or tells them, 
And, and just a, an amazing parallel to the history of Israel. Christ is, is the new Moses and the true Israel, if you look at it within Scripture and especially within the book of Matthew. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18, and he's talking to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so God promised all the way back in the time of Moses that there's coming another prophet. It's that same seed of the woman. But I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, Moses. And so Moses is a picture of Christ. In fact, Stephen, just before he was put to death in the book of Acts, he pointed to this. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 35 through 39, it says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. You see what Stephen is doing is he's comparing Moses and Christ. And he's saying, look, back at the time of Moses, our fathers rejected Moses. And you're rejecting Christ. He's making this constant comparison. He says, our fathers saw all the miracles that Moses did in the wilderness, the signs and wonders. You guys have seen the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ, and yet you're rejecting him. Just like our forefathers did. Moses gave us the law. Christ taught us about the law. And you're rejecting Him. They've been waiting ever since the days of Moses. That prophet's going to come some days that's going to be just like Moses. And the point that he's making at the end is he says, which of the prophets did our forefathers not kill or persecute? In other words, he's saying, look guys, we got a long history of rejecting the prophets that God sends us. And you know what? You're doing it again. By rejecting Christ. You see, they had a whole history built on what it was going to look like when Jesus would come. And they missed it. In this passage, it compares it a little bit more to Israel instead of just Moses himself. The wise men come to worship Jesus. They're looking for Him. They stop at Herod and say, where do we find the one that's born King of the Jews? Well, Herod doesn't like the idea of a new king being around. And so he wants to get rid of them. And so he calls for all the Bible scholars and says, where's the guy that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? Where would he be born? And they said, well, Micah 5.2 says Bethlehem. So Bethlehem. And so the wise men go off to Bethlehem. And Herod says, after you guys worship him, when you find him, come back, tell, him, tell me where he is so I can go worship him too. Which, of course, he wanted to kill him. So the wise men go and they find him and they worship him. And then they leave. The wise men went a different way because they're warned by God. But Herod is mad, knows he's been deceived, and so he goes after him. And Joseph is warned in a dream, says, take him down to Egypt so they'll be saved. Now this has a long history. Abraham went into Egypt to be protected from a famine. was later sent home with gifts from Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had taken Sarah in his harem. So God protected Sarah by bringing plagues upon Egypt, and the Pharaoh sent them out with gifts. So I have kind of a little exodus. God's people go down into Egypt again to be protected from famine during the days of Joseph. And then they hang around there and end up becoming slaves. And then God sends Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he says at that time, out of Israel, 
I have called my son. When Jesus gets taken down by Joseph, gets taken down into Egypt to protect him from Herod. And then the Bible says, as it quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt have I called my son. The whole history of Israel has been proclaiming the coming of Christ. Now we just get to see it unfold. It's an amazing story. And the parallels between Christ and Moses. Herod gets mad and he comes in and he slaughters all the children, two years old and younger, just to make sure that he gets the one that was supposed to be king of the Jews. Well, of course, he didn't get him, but notice the parallel. Christ, life was threatened and he was brought into safety in Egypt. At the time Moses was born, the Pharaoh was trying to kill all the sons of the Israelites and Moses was protected and brought into the palace. Well, we find that Moses and the children of Israel have these things in common. And Matthew just kind of outlines them if you look at the structure of Matthew. Both Jesus and the Israelites protected in Egypt. Israelites protected from the famine. Jesus protected from Herod. Both of them come up out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. But then not only that, they came through the waters. Because what happens when Israel, they come out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... It refers to that crossing of the Red Sea as like a a baptism. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So looking back upon the time when Israel came through the sea, God parted the sea and they came through that water. And then with God's uh, cloud that covered them, he refers to both of those things as a baptism that they had into Christ. And what do we find next in the Gospel of Matthew? The very next thing that we see happen is him get baptized by John in the wilderness. The nation of Israel comes through the waters of the Red Sea and Jesus comes through the waters of the Jordan as He's baptized by John. Then they were both tested. As soon as they came through the sea, they found themselves in the wilderness where the Bible says they were tested for 40 years. And Jesus, as soon as He's baptized by John the Baptist, is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. They both address the law of God. As soon as they're out in the wilderness and they're in that time of testing, they come to Mount Sinai and the next thing that happens is God gives them the law. You know what the next thing that happens in the book of Matthew is? The Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5-7 through and we find the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the Sermon on the Mount about? The law. Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-20, through 20, He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what does he say right after that? He says, you know what? You've heard that it's wrong for you to kill somebody. I'm telling you it's wrong to even be angry with them. You've heard that it's wrong for you to commit adultery. I'm telling you it's wrong for you even to have lust within your hearts. You see, he begins to tell them how the law should really apply to our hearts and lives in this time. Just the time Israel gets the law, Jesus addresses the law in the book of Matthew. Uh, following that, we find a miraculous display of the glory of God. You see, out in the wilderness, Israel would wear the same shoes for 40 years and they wouldn't wear out. They would drink water from a rock. They would eat manna, which is 
means what is it? They didn't even know what it was. Some miraculous food right from heaven's kitchen, right to them. They were miraculously provided for, as I think it was in Acts 7 when, when Stephen was talking to him, he says, with all the signs and the wonders. And that's exactly what we see in Matthew after this. The next few chapters, chapters 8 through 10, we see one miracle after another as he heals person after person, as he does, performs all these different miracles. We see the signs and wonders of Christ. You know, the thing that really stands out to me this season more than any other season before, and I know, I've always known that there's a lot of prophecy connected with Christ's birth, and I know what those passages are, but what really impresses upon my heart this year is the depth of this holiday that we're celebrating. When you look at the whole history of Israel, and you see that mirrored in the person of Christ as Matthew lays out his gospel one thing after another with both of them going down into Egypt for protection, both of them coming out of Egypt, both of them going through a baptism, both of them going through a time of testing, both of them dealing with the law, both of them signs and wonders and glory, just boom, boom, boom. It's an exact parallel. You know what the point is? The first Israel failed. The second Israel succeeded. The first Adam brought sin. The second Adam brings salvation. And Israel's entire history points to this Christmas. That is so amazingly awesome. Christmas is an amazingly deep holiday. It's it's a holiday that was anticipated, that was waited for, that was prophesied about, and not only prophesied through words, prophesied through a a history of an entire nation pointed to what would happen to this Savior. And we get to look back at it and stand in awe this Christmas season. So then what's a fitting celebration for a Christmas that is so miraculous? A Christmas where there's such an amazing gift? A Christmas that is so deep as we see its, its heritage, its history? Well, as we look within this passage, we find it responded to in basically two different ways. The first way is worship. Joseph's going to worship. Mary's going to worship. The shepherds are going to worship. The angels are going to worship. Everybody's going to worship. That's why we gather this morning and we sing the songs. We sing these Christmas carols. And we do the different things we do. We decorate the way we do. And we give gifts the way we do. We do all those things because we're worshiping. We're thankful. We're grateful for what God has done and continues to do in our life. But also notice the second proper response in celebrating Christmas is obedience. A lot of these people had things rock their life in a way that was pretty amazing. The angel first comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. Think of that. Young girl in that society, not as promiscuous as a society as ours has grown to be. Young girl in that society, engaged to somebody that she cares deeply about, and she's going to turn up pregnant. How much is that going to shake things up in her world? And she has one question. How, how, how can that be? I, I haven't been with anybody. And they said, God. Now, that settles it for her. doesn't necessarily make it easier. Because now she's going to go home and she's going to be found to be pregnant and she's going to say, God did it. And how many people are just going to swallow that one? So it's going to shake her, it's going to shake her life. And you know what she says? Do unto me as God sees fit. Joseph. He's the one engaged to this young lady. And he finds that she's with child. And now his world is rocked. And what's he going to do? And he decides to do, handle it kindly, but righteously. And thankfully, you know, God knows it's going to take something for Joseph to, to believe that. So he sends an angel to Joseph too. And what does Joseph do? He takes it on. Even when you get to Christ's adult life, you're going to find things written in the Gospels like, 
we're not illegitimate children when the, when the religious leaders would talk to Jesus. In other words, they're telling Jesus, look, we're not the ones that are illegitimate like you are. And so it costs that family. But you know what that family did? They obeyed. That's the thing. Christmas should result in that kind of obedience in our life. When we look at what God has done for us and the grace that He bestows upon us by sending His Son to be our Savior, how can we not be excited about just uh, getting in line right behind Him and just being obedient in our life and doing the things that He wants us to do and celebrating the things that we ought to be celebrating? Obedience should be a natural result of our faith in God. In fact, it is. When we don't see obedience, it's because we're not seeing much faith. And that's what we need to be celebrating this year, this Christmas. So this Christmas is kind of an amazing thing as we look at these, as we look at the outline and the structure of Matthew, we find this, this Christmas to be a miraculous season. We find this Christmas to have this amazing gift. We find this Christmas to be an incredibly deep, the whole history uh, proclaims it, this deep celebration, and we have our opportunities to celebrate through worship and obedience.